Kenny. And I'm Tahinda. And welcome to the very first episode of On Uncertainty. We're super excited to have you on here. Um, today we have with us Dr. Karen Fleming, professor, a professor and researcher in the Department of Biophysics. Yes, I would say, uh, so Kenny and I actually met her in a class membrane proteins advanced seminar membrane proteins pretty cool if you're an undergrad really worth taking um but beyond that we've got to see her be a leader in a lot of the social discussions that have been taking place especially after the killing of george floyd and now there is a lot of engagement with within the faculty and um undergrads so she's been leading a lot of discussions about women in stem minorities in STEM, and that is going to be the topic of today's discussion. Uh, so the title that she gave us was The Myth of the Male Legend. Um, and myth of the Male right Genius. The myth of the Male Genius. Myth of the Male Genius. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so to get right into it, um, Professor Fleming, can you describe what you uh, what you meant by the myth of the jail, the male genius? <laughs> sure. Um, so first, I want to say how excited I am to be here and to talk to undergraduate students about um, these important issues of equitable access to STEM and STEM careers. And um, it's especially flattering that students from my own class enjoy the class and that, that I've made an impact on them because the class, of course, was a science class. It wasn't about equity or anything else like that. Um, right. So there's this concept in science about the male genius and it's a stereotype and it's the idea that, you know, uh, the white male is the um, exceptionally intellectual um, person who has you know, exceptional creative power and outstanding natural abilities and that these traits belong to the white male. And so um, I think it's been around a long time, but this is just sort of the concept that the stereotype exists. And there's a couple of different studies that show that we, all of us generally hold the stereotype because if you ask somebody to draw a picture of a scientist, they're likely to draw a, a white male. I mean, this is changing, but historically, mm. this has been the observation. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like that kind of relates to like the picture of a scientist. So um, we watched this movie, Dr. Fleming recommended we watch it called Picture a Scientist. And it was about three women and their experiences in the natural sciences. Um, so yeah, no, my, my question was, in the movie, right, there is like, like this repeated theme about all these women like expecting to be in this environment of meritocracy, completely being judged by their, I don't know, um, what they do. And like, that wasn't the case. It was like, they were like being pushed out through like all their experiences from the science. It was not because like, they didn't do anything wrong or like they weren't up to it. They were definitely up to it, but it was like all these other things. Yeah. The meat, the movie I think is exceptionally well done and it highlights three of the main sort of challenges to women in STEM these days. And, uh, and they have the profiles really illustrate these challenges quite well. So the first is of course, you know, the really horrible, uh, things that can happen to women like sexual coercion and you know there's quid mm -hmm. pro quo there's even you know worse things that can happen and these often meet the legal definition of harassment and that's what the office for institutional equity in title IX is supposed to protect women against and that uh you know we like we talk about as the quote above the waterline offenses they're they're extremely horrible, um, but they're very, very rare, it turns out. And the second theme is the, what we would call the below the waterline offenses. And these can be characterized as the put downs, the marginalizations, not being heard, not being recognized 
because you know extra having extra scrutiny applied to your work because you don't meet the stereotype of the male genius and um, I should explain the waterline so the the National Academies published a report in 2018 on sexual harassment in the sciences and the movie is based on this report and then the report and the movie use this metaphor of an iceberg right and so you know that most of the mass of an iceberg is below the waterline and that's because most of the hostility experienced by women in the stem fields is that kind of hostility it's the stuff that just on its own might be slightly offensive but it accumulates because it's so pervasive and so frequent and it really is due to bias against women and women of color and marginalized groups because they don't look like the male genius and then another way this manifests which is sort of the third way in the movie they discuss is through access to resources so you know nancy hopkins at mit had less space the, the women there had less space demonstrably and this is something that can be counted very yeah. easily so it With feels data. like yeah data so i feel like institutions should be able to ensure more equitable access to resources for their um their researchers mm -hmm. of course if you have less access to resources you have less ability to do the research so you get less done and then you're fulfilling that cycle of not being able to accomplish as much as your white male colleagues because they have more access to resources um, yeah. and, and, and greater abilities to do research yeah that was that was like the most astonishing thing that i like kind of learned from the movie so when like nancy hopkins um did like compiled all the data about like how women generally had less lab space and like i don't know like it was like the dean or something like refused to look at it like he just like said no like i'm not gonna look at this and it was a science institution like they're all about like looking at the data impartially so that was that was very interesting yeah and disappointing disappointing yeah and I'm honestly very surprised that, like, not every institution has since then done, like, a very thorough study looking into, you know, how many women are hired, in what positions, how many other underrepresented minorities are hired, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that just seems very obvious. That seems like a very, you know, good thing to do. I understand it might have implications like the MIT president had reluctance over uh, publishing the essay. And I guess it, this is like a, oh, a strange question, but do you know what has held back institutions from doing something like that? Like, is there a cost to transparency? Wow, that that is really you know a loaded question. So, so you know, there, the other thing to keep in mind is that there are public institutions and there are private institutions, and so there is much more transparency in many of the public institutions. You know, for example, if you took the metric of compensation, so if you are a faculty member at a public institution, it is likely that your compensation is public knowledge and part of the public record. And so, you know, anyone could Google professor's name, salary, and find some report from the state, whatever state they're in, that would give the salary. It's very different at a private institution. It's not supported by the state, right? So there's no obligation to make this information public. And so as a consequence, a lot of information is not public. And so there's less transparency, I would expect in general. I mean, I'm not an expert on all private institutions, mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I know that here at Hopkins, there's not that much transparency around these issues. Hmm. I mean, in the, in the panel, they were like talking about how the medical school was, had like all these like councils and stuff, but it, those weren't present at Homewood. 
Yes, that is something that a number of groups are currently advocating for. It's more transparency in how compensation is decided at Homewood and, um, you know, related to that would be allocation of resources at Homewood. And, and so there's some interest in implementing this, a little more transparency so people will understand the rationale behind their compensation. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, okay, so I, I have a question. Do you remember like the, the phrase, I, I don't remember which scientist in the movie used it, but like a, a ton of feathers is still a ton. That was, that really stuck in my mind. Um, so it, when you have that, right, and like you have to focus on all those feathers and all those little like aggressions and you have like the simultaneous notion of like the myth of male genius, like how do those two go together? You know, like how do they like, like how do they interplay? Because I feel like when you have to like, when you can't focus on the science, then you might fall behind. And so then like, you kind of like further that notion, you know, in a way. Yeah, yeah, sh sure. So, I mean, it's well known that marginalized groups spend more cognitive effort on, you know, uh, they, questions of um, do they fit in? Do they not fit in? Did they, you know, they, do they have, did they just, did something just happen to them? I mean, it's pretty normal. The psychology field tells us the normal reaction when something happens like a microregression um, or put down happens. The first reaction when you're young is that you're surprised and you don't, you're confused and you're not really sure what happened. And so then you're spending cognitive energy that you could be spending on science and schoolwork to understand what just happened. And it also reinforces the notion that um, you're not part of the in-group, that there is an in-group and that you're not part of it. And so the ton of feathers thing really struck with me also, but for a different reason I'll tell you about in a minute. But one way to think about it is um, death by a thousand little cuts. That's another way that I've thought about it, right? A, tie, a bunch of little acts of bias. Any one of them probably is not enough to do anything, right? But when you go every day, you progress through your work and you're, you're getting little cuts and little put downs and your voice is marginalized and your concerns are not taken seriously and you're told you're too sensitive, that wears on you after a while. And so, you know, this is, I think, why, I think it was Jane who said it, a ton of feathers is still a ton of feathers and it weighs you down. But, but for me, I've been playing around with writing something about a ton of feathers. And for me, what I feel when I, what I have been feeling this week as I've been working this picture of scientists film is the weight of getting the students on board. I feel a responsibility as um, a member of the faculty to sort of empower my students to do what they would like to do and to have the skills to flourish in the STEM environments. And um, some students, I think, don't understand that the playing field is not even. And so how I feel the weight of trying to get the attention of these students so they can tune in to the, uh, you know, the playbook and understand what's happening so that there'll be players um, in the game. But yeah, it's exhausting. Some, some, some days are just e exhausting because of the constant little aggressions. And I mean, this is a podcast, so viewers don't see me, but I, I'm actually a white person. And so I think understanding this discrimination gives me a tiny, tiny little bit of taste into, into imagining what it must be like to be a person of color in this country at this time, or even before this time, but certainly at this time, we're thinking about the inordinate um, you know, burdens carried by people um, and 
how every day is so difficult and it just does not have to be that way if we all would be better about treating each other with dignity and respect and we can like achieve so much more like it's all that wasted time like that you have to like like deal with all these extra stuff when you can just be focusing on the science right you have to deal with all this extra stuff and this also manifests itself in terms of learning so there's you know research in the pedagogical field about how students learn um, and especially there's a researcher named Claude Steele who's done a lot of work uh, with the African-American community in studying the effects of in-group, out-group effects and invoking stereotype threat with that group. And students actually learn differently if they feel the threat of the stereotype. If they feel like, oh, I'm a black student and I must perform for all black students, right? If they feel like they're representing all of their people. and and it's actually the highest achieving students who feel this the most because they care the most about achieving. So we as instructors need to be mindful of this and we need to avoid invoking stereotype threat and we need to you know, use language that is sensitive to, to the, the fact that that can happen so that we don't cause that to happen in our students. Um, and I think most of us are still learning how to be better in that sense. And I would just add that, like, I personally, and I'm sure Kenny is too, I'm so appreciative that um, there are, like, outspoken advocates like you in STEM and, like, here, <laughs> uh, specifically where I'm at. And, of course, I hopefully the rest of the world has their own um, Dr. Fleming, but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's all we can ask for. Um, but yeah, thank you. Um, and additionally, another question I, I wanted to ask was, uh, what kind of changes you've personally seen in STEM since, since starting out and, and also like what your path in science has been like, uh, if that's something you're willing to share with us? Um, sure. So I, let me just start with the biggest change. I think the biggest change is that there is greater awareness to the damage that not only the above the waterline offenses inflict, but also the below the waterline offenses inflict. And part of the reason why there's greater awareness is because the conversation around these issues and around civility and respect for people who look different than you are becoming more normalized. So I have to say the only good thing I think about this current political climate is that it has a, awakened a much larger population to the inequities that exist. And many more people appreciate um, what, how other people experience life. Probably nearly, not nearly as fully as they can if they're not part of that group, but I think there's a greater appreciation and the conversation is now being had more openly and, and in more normal settings. So I think that's what I think has changed the most. Um, you know, my own path, I started as an assistant professor here at Hopkins in 2000. Our department has a, is about 75 years old. So we're an old department and I'm the only woman who's been hired as an assistant professor to be promoted through the ranks to full professor really? in biophysics. The only woman. Whoa. So what about what about Professor Lecomte? So our department now is really remarkable. We're about fifty percent women, but um, the senior women were brought in from outside. Oh. Okay. Except for me. Yeah. Interesting. So I feel. Yeah, one of when I got tenure, one of the one of the one of my senior colleagues brought this up, and I actually had never even really thought about it before. Um, and I have to say, you know, when I was promoted to full professor in 2013, I was a much different person because I was, you know, I was carrying around a lot of anger about how a lot of things had gone, and you know, just one day I decided I cannot be angry anymore. This is not good. 
and I need to channel this. I, I'm in a place of privilege and I need to channel this privilege into um, making it better for the women who are going to come behind me. Like I want it to be better for you guys. I want it to be better for my daughter and her daughter and mm -hmm. my colleagues' daughters. And so the only way to do that is to speak out. So you have enormous job security as a full professor and you have enormous agency. And with that comes, I think, a responsibility to make it better. Yeah. I just, I remember, like, as an undergrad, right? Like, freshman year, like, I think all of my professors were, like, white and men. But, like, if you notice at Hopkins, right, the undergrad population is pretty diverse, like, especially in the STEM fields. So I was like, one day I just thought about it and I was like, how is this, like, how is this even possible? Like, like it's, it was just like, like intro chem, intro physics, like all these like introductory science classes. And it wasn't even till like junior year that like I had like female professors, not to say like, like professors of color. Yeah. I mean, I, this is a challenge, you know, to diversifying the faculty so that it is more representative of the population is a challenge that many universities face. And at Hopkins, the, you know, we recognize this is a challenge and it's part of the uh, roadmap for diversity that the president has set out for Hopkins. And, you know, diversity is now a conversation with every hiring committee and there's a diversity advocate on every hiring committee and there are requirements you know to make sure that you have um, broadly advertised your job position to lots of different places and so that's that is a, an aspect of the you know the academy here at hopkins that we're working on um, but one of the frustrating things is that the turnover in the academy is slow the professoriate, yeah. you know, we've had one or two searches in the 20 years I've been here. So we've only had the opportunity to update our faculty a couple of times. Um, and in fact, I have, when I give seminars on this, I have a graph from the National Science Foundation of full, female full professors in the natural sciences. And, you know, it's the rate of increase in this demographic is like, I don't know, very small very small percentage per year. Um, but that data is not broken down by ethnicity or race. And so most female full professors are probably white. So that's that doesn't even address the issue of equitable representation by women of color. But still, mm -hmm. it that data, if you, you know, I like to fit the data, right? And then you can extrapolate the curve farther yeah. along, right? So it's like another generation of women before the really? representation as a full professor uh, even slightly reflects that in the population. That's crazy. Yeah, we have to put some energy into this process, right? It's not a spontaneous mm -hmm. process. This is the sort of, you know, the sort of metaphor I like to make for, to talk about it in scientific terms. This is not going to happen spontaneously. This is going to take an input of work. It's a positive delta G, positive it free is. energy. That's right. Right now it's a positive delta G. But you know, the other thing I would say is that diversity does not solve the problem, right? So there's this, mm. there's this saying about, you can be invited to the party, but if you're not asked to dance, you're not really, at the party, right? And so mm -hmm. the other piece that goes along is inclusion. And yeah. um, that is much more challenging, I think, to address because it's an issue of climate and it cannot be easily counted yeah. the way sort of faculty demographics could be counted or that space could be counted, right? So there's both pieces that need work. Yeah, and, and one of the things I, I wanted to elaborate on during our, our discussion about what makes this process of um, promoting diversity and inclusion um, not spontaneous, <laughs> Delta G's positive, like you guys said, is the leaky pipeline. And I wanted to ask you to walk us through that analogy a little bit, um, especially for some listeners who may have never heard of it. 
And also, like, all of the stats that the movie raised, you know, like, there was one woman who talked about how her class was, you know, 50% female at the very beginning, but by the very end, it was, like, you know, 10% or so. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, so so let's let's start off there with walking through the leaky pipeline metaphor and... Through the leaky pipeline. Sure. So the pipeline, let me just, let's see how I can say this. All right. So, you know, the pipeline is a metaphor for the progression of women or everyone through the scientific enterprise from, you know, interest in middle school science to high school science to being a, a natural science major in college to pursuing an advanced degree like a PhD to the next step in many areas would be the postdoc and then to the, to the professoriate. And uh, the observation is that women leak out of the pipeline at every level. There's fewer women who are science majors, you know, who like science in high school as compared to middle school. There's fewer science majors in college compared to high school. Even fewer women go on to grad school you lose some more when they do a postdoc and even more when they become faculty. And for many years, for most of my career, the discussion has surrounded, uh, has been focused on um, the women and what is wrong with the women. And so part of that discussion is that the key time periods for um, moving from postdoc to the professoriate also coincide with the time in one's life when you'd want to have a family um, and have children, you know, if you want to become a parent. And so this was a problem. This was sort of an explanation for a long time. Women are opting out because they want to be parents and a scientific career is just too demanding. And, um, and it is true that a scientific career is demanding, right? But the, the, um, this has really been debunked recently and um, the National Academies of Science, um, Engineering, and Medicine have done us the community an amazing service by publishing a report that says no, it's not the women's problem. It's the problem that the women experience a climate that's hostile, and so they opt out, right? Because why would you stay in a job when you go in every day? <coughs> excuse me, and it's hostile, and. Um, I'm so glad you asked about this metaphor because when I think about the pipeline and when we all think about the pipeline, we should note that the pipeline is not this nameless, faceless entity, right? The pipeline is the collection of people who are the current practitioners of science. And that means that it includes you know, these people are the, the core of academia from the president to the provost, mm -hmm. to the deans, to the faculty, to the grad students, all the way down to the students, right? It's all of us who make up this ecosystem that, um, you know, represents the soul of, an, of, an ac of academia. And so, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on institutional transformation and everybody always sort of thinks, okay, well, you know, the faculty just need to be better. And the faculty say, well, the deans need to be better. And, you know, the deans say, well, the president needs to establish better policies, right? Yeah. And the students are like, why aren't there people who look like me? And um, what, what I would say is that it, we, it requires all of us to solve this problem at all levels. Mm -hmm. And I would even say that the students, especially you guys at your stage, you guys have an amazing superpower because you can, can mold and form the kind of pipeline that you want to have as you move through science. Mm -hmm. And one reason why I think you have this amazing power is that most incidences of harassment that are experienced by students, they are inflicted by other students. Interesting. Yeah, this is what one of the findings in the report. 
So the, the movie Picture of Scientists showed this like, horrific experience of harassment um, that Jane experienced from a professor of Marshak. But yeah. that's rare. That's a rare occurrence. That's not, it, even if we were to like go through all the universities and get rid of all the yucky guys, yucky people like that, mm -hmm. it would not solve the problem until each of us understands that we must be good to each other. Mm -hmm. And there are way more students than there are faculty. And, and, and because people, you know, because people opt out at every level, because it's hostile, it's the hostility they're feeling from their colleagues. I'm not saying that faculty don't do it too, but you interact more with your colleagues than you do with your faculty mm -hmm. members. Yeah. And so if I say, if I say anything to you guys, I want you to understand that you have an amazing power to shape the world how you want it to be. This is part of the weight of the ton of feathers. It's like, how do I, how do I help students understand that I cannot solve their problem? Only they can solve their problem. And so I think we need to reimagine the pipeline as we all have collective ownership and we all have a responsibility to nurture inclusion at all levels, all the time, every day, every time you have a transaction with someone else, you can make it, a, you can make the place better for everyone else. Every time you lift somebody else up, it, it's going to lift you up too and create mm -hmm. a community that is more inclusive for everyone. Yeah. That, that kind of like, brings me to like the when in the panel like one of the panelists talked about like restorative justice as a way for both parties to learn and grow from that process so what do you what do you think about that like restorative justice as a way to like address like what's underneath the iceberg i mean i think that's for me that comes from a place you know from a foundation or a belief that when everybody wakes up and goes to work every day, they want to do something good, that, that people intrinsically are good and they want to do something good. Mm -hmm. And um, depending on your background and the culture and climate you grew up in, you know, you may have those skills may come more naturally to you or they may not, right? Or you may be unaware of your biases and, um, be discriminating against people and not even understand that you're doing that, right? So yeah. this is the whole impact versus effect, right? So I do believe that um, there should be room for redemption. I do believe there should be room for people to grow. Um, so I do think there, you know, we will all be better if we can all uh, learn how to have empathy and compassion and learn how to forgive mm -hmm. and to move on. Right. So, you know, some offenses are probably not so easily to forgive, yeah. right? but, but the below the waterline stuff, you know, if it's pointed out to you that you, that you're doing that and you change that should be celebrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the other thing I really, the other point I try to make when I give these seminars is that, you know, Mostly when I give talks, I talk through about the lens of gender. And I think that's mostly because most of the research in STEM is not broken down to a more granular level than gender. Mm -hmm. uh, and even in the National Academies report, they don't have very much information in there about um, marginalized communities and people of color or how discrimination is affecting, you know, LGBTQ plus community, right? It's always just sort of gender. Um, and so what I think is scary for some people is that it sets up the idea that it's women versus men, mm. right? And I want to make the point that it is so not women versus men. And the study they, uh, in the picture of scientists, they interview Corrine Mosras Cusin, who's the first author on the PNAS study that came out, I think in 2012. And that study showed that bias against young women in STEM is inflicted by faculty who are both ma male and female, or who are either male or female, mm -hmm. 
right? So, so I have a slide in my talk that shows a picture of a, a beautiful, pink, shiny, glittery unicorn. And I use it to make the point that, that women, especially white women, are not magical unicorns. <laughs> we are biased. We are just as biased as everybody else. And the discrimination and bias felt by young people in science can come from a man or a woman. This is not a, it's not that the men are all the bad guys. That's not true at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, the reason why this is so important is because the community is male dominated and men generally want to do the right thing. They want, you know, if you're in science, you want to see the best science. And if it's a woman doing the best science, men, all the men I know, they don't have any problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> right. And so they need to be part of the solution. They need to be part of the conversation. They need to be part of the discussion. They need to be part of the solution. And it needs to be not so us versus them mm -hmm. between men and women. We are all part of the problem. Yeah. And we can all be part of the solution. Yeah. It was, it was surprising. Like when like the, I think it was the cognitive scientist who did the, the test with like the male and the female and underneath the words, it was like different, like, like, family or work and stuff and she was like like even i was surprised that i couldn't like do the like test like how i wanted to so that right that was interesting yeah that is so you can do that test online that's called project implicit and it's hosted by a harvard website so i don't remember exactly the website projectimplicit.harvard.edu or something like that and um so I've done workshops where I have people do Project Implicit and do the test for science and gender and skin color. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually, you know, when I do these workshops and stuff, I spend a couple of days preparing and I'm making slides and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. And often I'll just take the Project Implicit test with gender and science. And I am biased. Every single time I've taken it, mm -hmm. I am biased towards men and science. And, you know, I could be reading the social psychology literature for days and plotting data and thinking hard about it. And I go into that <laughs> test and I am biased. So, you know, that's really important for me to know so that I can check my biases. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you guys should take it and you should encourage all your listeners to take this test. Yeah. Yeah. Project Project Implicit, right? Project Implicit. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And to to recap the actual test, it puts two words in. So, hold on, I have to think of a way to actually describe it. So you have on one side of the board a gender and either family or career. Uh, if you're doing the specific test that's in the movie, and on the other side of the board the opposite gender and uh, family or career and your time response to uh, to new words and like on oh god never mind forget this <laughs> but I'll probably go <laughs> like oh I think she said it's like the salt and pepper thing right salt and pepper go yeah. together yeah so then you if you put them together you and you say yes that you respond very quickly to that but if you put, you know, pepper and sugar together, you'd have to stop and think about it. The response time is slower. So, yeah, the response time is slower. So, so like if in the test, like if you have like woman and like cars or like work or whatever, it'd be like slower than like, like woman and like house, right? Oh. No. Wait, I thought it was like um, your... Like when you're told to associate men with career, your timing is much quicker to do those things than women than women in career. Yes, that's okay. true. Yeah, that was super interesting. I'm scared of the answer I'm going to get, and it, in part it's because of the the point that you made, Professor Fleming, at the very beginning of this recording, which is that we start to get acclimated to this idea of a male genius at a very young age. Like, it is just, 
ingrained in us. It's really disappointing. And yeah, there are like exceptions, but predominantly, I think the scientists and dare I say, like academics in general that we see do tend to be male. Um, And you get like Bill Nye, the science guy, and all these like, you know, yeah, showy presenters of science. I would say the most wildly or publicly um, acknowledged scientists alive today, the ones that interact with um, the public more, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, all these big names are generally male. Um, Yeah, I don't know. But that goes back to an earlier point. I, I would I would encourage you not to be scared. Be, and here's why. Because once you know what, what your bias tendencies are, that's empowering. Because that can help you understand how to be better. Right? Help you understand where you're sort of coming from. And, you know, am I disappointed that I associate men with science? Yeah, I am. I've also done the skin color test. I grew up in the South in, you know, small towns in Texas and Louisiana. So I also failed the skin color test big time. And I am disappointed in that because I, uh, I really think that's wrong to be racist. But the fact that I know what my sort of um, subconscious reaction will be to something helps me sort of be extra aware when I'm um, saying something or acting. Of course, I still make mistakes, but I feel like it's empowering for me to know how to know that that's what I need to check. And so then it helps me check it. So that's, that's a gift to be able to know what you need to check. So uh, don't be afraid, embrace it. It's a good thing. The knowledge is a good thing. Yeah. So, like, with all of these, like, I don't know, like, issues, like, what, like, what can, like, more can we do, like, as undergrads, as, like, like, this ecosystem, like, specifically at Hopkins? What more can we do? So, I, I would say in the STEM fields, Um, The most powerful thing, sort of strategy, I think that I have is to approach these issues like a scientist. So I'm always looking for evidence and I'm looking for data. And when I'm having conversations with people or giving seminars, I really present this information like a scientist would present this information. And um, in fact, when I do workshops, I have like a no anecdote rule because scientists are, they love data. Yeah. And I think if you wanna bring somebody around to a different point of view, it's, it's really extremely helpful to do that with data. Because data, data are data, you can talk about it. People would decide to disagree, but data are data. So that I think helps a lot. It helps keep the conversation focused on, you know, some facts and what we know and so I think that's a good way to approach it. So it, data also lets you sort of analyze situations, the social dynamics of a situation. And so if you need, if a situation needs to be improved, if you understand sort of the dynamics that are at play from a point of view of data, then it um, is easier to find a solution, right? Because you want to have evidence-based solutions. Now, having said this, I know I think it's extremely useful to know what the stories are also. Like this film tells story, right? Yeah. Um, but when I am involved with storytelling that I like to, uh, you know, I have a, if we're, we have to serve cheese, right? If we're going to have some wine, we got to serve cheese. And so, because every, every woman I know has a story. And I'm sure every person of color has a story. And that's very cathartic and really important to share these stories. And sometimes that will bring people around. But in science, I really think the data. So I suggest you do, you know, journal clubs. 
to study social psychology literature. I have a couple of these on my blog that I put some things on um, so that you know the data. You, in your labs, you could have journal clubs in your labs. So, you know, students can organize journal clubs in, within their cohort so that everybody sort of knows what the talking points are, knows where they come from, and knows how, they're, how they've been discovered. Um, there's enormous, you know, community grassroots things you can do that are free that trickle up through the labs. So yeah. that's what I would say. And the other thing is be good to each other. Lift each other up. And if you see somebody, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody is acting in a way that's inappropriate, be a bystander. Say, oh, did, did you just say that? You know, that's a really easy way to be a bystander is to ask for clarification. Right? Yeah. Um, I also wonder if there's data on, like, how trustworthy someone is based on, just based on their voice because I like I'm pretty sure every narrator of like you know any sort of scientific information that's like out there in the public sphere is male like you know it's like typically if you're British too that that helps um <laughs> just the the voices we trust to disseminate knowledge are male and I obviously I can never have that you know and I wonder if there's data that that shows I don't know maybe we're just more prone to trusting male authorities yeah i'm sure there's data around that issue i'm not actually i don't know what that data are but i'm sure there's data on that issue you know there you know there's also imagery right images have enormous power to sort of shape who we are and who we think we can become and so you know changing the face of a scientist is an important um, goal to strive for. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different ways to, to, to change the stereotypes. Yeah. How long, how long do you think it will take though? Like to achieve that, to like change the, like change the stereotypes. Cause we, we like today, like 2020, it's, I feel like there's so many stereotypes still around us. Yeah, you know, it, there are. And, you know, there's an interesting statistic, I think. It has to do with the fact that you have so much going on around you that you can't use your conscious thinking to address everything going around you. And so we, we as humans, we rely on our, non, on our unconscious thinking. And our unconscious thinking causes us to make decisions that are based on generalizations, right? So the decisions are based on stereotypes and expectations. What do we expect from a group of people? And so we have to change those expectations or we have to change our behavior to constantly remind ourselves to evaluate people and meet people as people, as individual people and not as members of a group. Right. We have to like, like, like you need a fly swatter to sweat down that bias. Right. <laughs> and so that's the power of knowing your biases is then, you know, when to get the fly swatter out. Mm. So mm -hmm. how long will it take? I don't know. I don't know, but I am optimistic because the conversation is happening. Yeah. Like I'm having this conversation with you guys. Yeah, right. Yeah. I never would have had this conversation with students when I first started. So yeah. So, I mean, so it's getting better with, with that, like you mentioned, like the linear, like extrapolation of like female professors. Do you think it will, if you're optimistic, do you think it will take like more than a generation to achieve like parity? I have to look at the slope for the more recent number. So I plot it every once in a while. Right. And so yeah. <laughs> what you're looking for, you're looking for the data to take off with a new slope and it hasn't done that. Yeah. It hasn't done that yet. But I'm hoping okay. that it will. Yeah, hopefully. I think I think it's important to have. Like I know, like students, it it needs to start from the students, but also like to see like to have like a female professor, right, or to have a professor of color. I I feel like that's like a very powerful statement of like like breaking stereotypes because 
the professor is generally like the the authority in the room you know and like you can't really like like i can't really like i don't have like that much power in the classroom like the professor is like the person with like the power and to see like to have like someone who's a woman or like like a person of color in that position of power could do a lot I agree. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no denying that role models are especially important. Um, but I also want to point out that this does put this has the potential to put extra burden on women and on yeah on uh, yeah. you know women of color to represent the group, right? And and so you know any individual professor may or may not want to represent quote the group. And, and really, it should be all of us, right? It should be the white male professors when they're teaching biochemistry, you know, they should show, you know, was it the Michaelis-Menten equation, right? They should show that, yeah. that Maud, Maud Menten is a woman, right? They, yeah. you know, there's lots of little opportunities all the time to highlight the contributions of women and people of color to, in science. And we just haven't done that as a matter of tradition and um yeah i mean i i actually have not shown pictures but i do try in class to say here this is a woman she's done this she came from here or here this is a you know this guy's at caltech he's amazing he's a, a black man doing really outstanding biochemistry work so i can you know give voice to the marginalized groups to help people find role models and and white men can do that too i think actually like when me and tana were taking biochem they like mentioned that when we were learning about my michaelis menten equation that was like a little flashback i had <laughs> yeah. and same with physical chemistry which which did bring up um michaelis menten yeah so, there yeah, been... so we need to do more of that one, one way, you know, one reason, so I don't know if you guys know about this Women of Hopkins exhibit, if you've been by it and seen the murals in the Matin Center of the yeah. women on, yeah, so, yes. yeah. so I was part of the team to do that a few years ago. We made that exhibit because I wanted the undergrads to walk by pictures of women who were accomplished. It know, worked. In, in Did it work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just the it's like, actually just. Go ahead. It's like common knowledge, like like I I mean like like I look back like it's like always been like a part of my Hopkins experience like walking back, walking by Madden and seeing like those pictures. So oh, that's amazing. I'm really glad to hear that. But you know there are places where so I go and give seminars right. There's places where you walk around the department and they have these gorgeous ornate frames full of the chemists of you know them yeah you know what i'm talking about yeah, right i know exactly what you're talking so, about so you know from top to bottom is portraits of of course they made great contributions i'm sure but certainly nobody that looks like me that's Much, right maybe there's a woman in there but there's i think we counted once one one of my friends and i we were just walking by and we were like this is this is just, it comes off almost as a shrine. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but. <laughs> that, that is a much nicer way of referring to it than I do. I mean, I, and a lot of us on Twitter called them dude walls. Oh, <laughs> visiting a new place. Oh, it took me an hour to find their dude wall. And, <laughs> you know, so students, you have an, a norm, you know, you have power here also, right? So if you decided as a group that this was um you know not inspiring to you you could come together and have a petition or write a letter to the department or the dean and and say how this make you explain how this makes you feel um and so we need you know you can be part of this change for the better hmm no what what can I like, as like a guy, right? What can I do? Like I I I liked how, um, in the panel they were like, like we need more men to like be in these talks and stuff and like, I don't know. But like I I I'm still like, I'm just wondering like what can I do? 
as like a guy what, in science. Yeah, what can you do? I mean, you're, you can do what, you know, your female colleagues should do, lift each other up. You can lift, you can, you know, promote women. If you think they're, you know, the best person for the job, you can promote women. You can, because you're male and you're part of the dominant in-group, the effect of your bystander intervention is greater so because a member of the in-group in has more more influence as a bystander so you know we should all be bystanders it's not that we want the men to all save save the women or something like that but don't underestimate the agency that you carry yeah. as, a, as a man to help make the um environment more inclusive mm -hmm. and agency is free you got yeah. it when you were born right so <laughs> True, um, true. It's something you can you can do to use your agency. Okay. And and we need you. We the community needs you and science needs you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if we have any more questions for you. In which case, uh, Kenny, are are you? Yeah, I'm good. On the same I page. A lot. Okay. Okay, and I, I guess we'll also, if, if there's anything more, um, if there's anything we haven't discussed yet that you wanted to, to bring up, now would be a, yeah. a decent time. <laughs> now would be a good time. Wow, we've covered a lot. We did. Yeah. I, I, guess the thing, I guess the other thing I would bring up is that, you know, what we need in STEM, what we need more of is we need more inclusion of women of color and people of color. And we need a conversation to be more inclusive um, with respect to race. And part of the challenge there is that we need more, you, you know, I mean, there's a social justice issue, there's the inclusive excellence issue, but we need to continue to collect data. And the numbers are small, but we still need the data because some people will require the data to, to, in order to move the needle on including people. Mm -hmm more broadly. Um, so I think, I think the conversation about race needs to grow in the STEM mm -hmm. fields. Do you think, do you think Hopkins has been like, I don't know, like a good place to have that conversation or have, can they do more? I mean, Hopkins is a good place to have the conversation because of where, because of where we're situated, mm -hmm. right? The it's certainly the the staff at Hopkins should be representative of the city. Yeah. The population in the city, right? And I don't I don't have the staff numbers with me right now. I don't have the demographics with me. And you know, we need more representation in the in the academy, in the professoriate of people in color, right? Mm -hmm. The the male genius is a myth. It's not yeah. it's not the white men who hold the intellectual who, who solely hold all the intellectual power we all have that power all groups have that power and so we need to um, be more inclusive in stem and so part of the part of how we solve this problem for the for the professoriate is to make the pipeline a, a better place for all people mm. you know starting young I mean, I work at a university, right? So the people I can influence are you. You're the mm -hmm. undergraduates, right? So I need to help them understand the power that they have and so that more people will stay in the pipeline. Yeah. So I think I think that's all the questions we I have, me and Tina have. We talked for like an hour, which is which is pretty nice. Yeah. We did. I was nervous. I was like, oh my goodness, what am I gonna say? So <laughs> We were nervous too. I okay. feel like I feel like I w I talked to Tina about this. Like usually it's like like you were the person in front of the class like saying, Oh, do you have any questions? Like 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 asking us questions and now we were the we were asking you questions, so that was like, whoa, interesting. <laughs> the tables have turned. Tables yeah. have turned. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for like, like talking with us. It's uh, I truly like learned a lot. These like 
in this in this、uh, talk and like in the panel and like watching the movie and stuff. It was very eye opening. Thank you. It's it's my pleasure. We gotta fix the leaks, man, and we all gotta do it. <laughs> we gotta fix the leak. <laughs> <laughs>